of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. I just want to introduce him to you. Uh, Most, many of you know uh, Brian and Jeanette, and some of you don't. Just a little bit of history. When I came here, 2004, June 2004, uh, I I I probably met Brian the Sunday, the infamous Sunday when I preached uh, my trial sermon on uh, Easter because everybody kids me that I preached on prostitution on Easter and uh, didn't really, but it was in the passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 6. So why does everybody remember that? You know, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I, I believe it might have been that Sunday where I met Brian and uh, for sure, when I came in, in June, Brian had been hired, and he started working the same time I did as the youth director. Uh, Steve Fultz came on as ministry coordinator that same June 1st. Um, and we thought that Brian was going to work for a year as youth director and then go to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. But as it worked out, with Redeemer being a plant of Westminster Redeemer Seminary, uh, in Dallas, and Brian working out so well, he was able to stay with us all five years of seminary. Uh, was a youth director, and uh, he sat in the uh, session, the elders, that whole time, and I think really got some tremendous training seeing us go through things and struggle with things, uh, seeking to shepherd the flock. And then uh, God uh, called Brian to... Purdue for four years, and now he's come back. And uh, I can't tell you what it means to me to have Brian here. Um, I just can't. Uh, he, he, he's got the most, um, he's got a tremendous heart, a tremendous mind for the gospel, a tremendous mind for the word, uh, very gifted in that regard. And he's got a tremendous heart for people. And uh, Brian said a few months back, he said, well, I'm, I'm really glad to come and take some things off your shoulders. And I said, well, it's really going to be just add another set of shoulders, you know, because <laughs> we're going to be full on. And, and that's what I see that it's just going to be amazing to see that much more pastoring, counseling, meeting with people, hospitality, poured out to the church. So um, I thank you all because your giving has made it possible for us to have this whole other realm of ministry that's going to go forth in our congregation. And And I, uh, I call you to pray for Brian and Jeanette and the family and to support them, to encourage them. And uh, we're, we're going to be blessed greatly by having them among us. So let's get to the word. Matthew 5. If you're looking in your pew Bible, uh, it's on page 
810. I'm sorry, I don't have my reading glasses on. Uh, the six looked like it. <clears throat> eight looked like a six. <clears throat> so we're going to read. We, we read a part of this, the first part of each of the Beatitudes uh, in our confession, and now we'll read the whole. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. They would sit as as they teach. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, a kingdom of heaven. Blessed are are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us once more as we come to God's Word. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for this time we have to open up your Word. We thank you that uh, you make great promises to us uh, when we gather around your Word together. We pray this morning that your Spirit working with your Word would bring about great change in our lives. We pray most of all that we would come to know your son, Jesus. We pray that he would become more beautiful and believable to us. He is the one that we need to hear from this morning. And so we pray that, uh, that you would present him to our sight. That we would drink deeply of the grace that is ours in him. That we might know him more and seek to follow him as our king. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, I want to tell you all how excited we are to be back here, too. Um, It feels very much like a homecoming to us, uh, and it's been wonderful. Um, You guys have welcomed us. See, I say you guys now rather than y'all. That's what happens when you go to the Midwest for four years. Um, Y'all have been uh, so welcoming to us thus far. It's been great. Um, You have helped us uh, resurrect a house. Uh, that four college guys did their best to destroy. Um, That first weekend that we were here, when I think there were over 15 of you who were helping us paint, and we are so appreciative of it. Thank you 
to those of you who brought us meals during those first couple weeks and have um, extended all sorts of kindness to us already. And we are, we are so happy about that and we're so excited to be here. Uh, I was not with you all last Sunday um, because I was actually back in Indianapolis doing a wedding for some former students. And that's one of those great things, the great privileges of being a minister, particularly doing RUF, where your students are at that age where they start dating eventually get engaged and often get married. And this was a unique privilege because these two students were the first that had met within our ministry at Purdue. And then I got to officiate their ceremony last week. However, I was thrown a bit of a curveball for this ceremony because this was the first wedding where I was actually expected to coordinate the ceremony as well as officiate it. And so I was in charge of telling people where to walk Um, when the bridesmaids were supposed to come, how frequently they were to come in, where the groomsmen and bridesmaids were to stand at the end. All the choreography was on me. And that's not the sort of thing that they teach you in seminary. And so this really ratcheted up the pressure for me in a big way for this wedding because I didn't want to mess this up. Why? Because everything at a wedding has to be perfect. And I didn't want to be the one that made it imperfect with my planning on that Friday night. Now, this couple was very gracious. It was wonderful. Everything went as planned, thankfully. But when you go to a wedding, everything has been thought about. The appearance of the entire ceremony has been planned and prepared for months in advance. The flowers, the dresses, um, all the choreography, the groomsmen's tuxes, the music, the candles, maybe most importantly, the bride's dress. Everything must be perfect, and that's obviously right for a wedding. But for a lot of us, and I would guess even a lot of us here this morning, that standard of perfection is not something that stops with those moments in life like wedding ceremonies. But that that standard of perfection extends to the whole of your life. That you have this expectation that your work, your relationships, your family your marriage, your friendships will be perfect, that there is this goal, this standard that you've set that you're seeking to attain. And it's one that's perfect in every way. And fathers, it's Father's Day. Maybe you're feeling that in a a very specific way today where you have an expectation that you will be the perfect father or at least not the father uh, that you uh, maybe experienced growing up. Uh, David Brooks gets at this in a great way in a column that he wrote, and he likens this uh, to the culture of golf, and he says this is our tendency as Americans. Here's what he says. He says, you won't understand America if you underestimate the powerful cultural influence of golf. The golf vision of perfection, the golf vision of success leads to a definition of what life should be like in its highest and most pleasant state. In the ideal world defined by golf, everything is perfect. When you've got your life together, you can glide through your days without unpleasant distractions or the fear of failure. Your DVD collection is organized, and so are your closets. Your car is clean and vacuumed. Your frequently dialed numbers are programmed into your phones. Your spouse is athletic. Your kids are bright. Your job is rewarding. Your promotions are inevitable. You look great in casual slacks. (laughs) You radiate confidence and calm. 
Your friends are relaxed and familiar. Your family is happy and cooperative. You are self-confident and wholesome. Your children are active and healthy. Your spouse is sincere and honest. Everyone is cooperative, hardworking, devout, and happy. Now, on the one hand, there's something good about this, right? I mean, striving for that sort of excellence and wanting to steward our gifts in all areas of life. But on the other hand, there is something that is absolutely suffocating about this perspective. And my guess is that that's probably the way some of us feel this morning. That you have this sort of standard of perfection in your life and it is killing you because you are not meeting that standard. But worst of all, I think, is that this perfectionism won't allow you to admit your weaknesses or your failures. Instead, what you're asked to do, consistent with your perfectionism, is to put on a smiley face and continue on as, as, as if everything is going as planned, that this is exactly what you intended for your life and that everything is going just fine. And what you're doing is you're living your life like your resume is constantly being evaluated. This weighs on you in your job. It weighs on you at school. It weighs on you when you are with other moms at the playground and you're out for a play date. Worst of all, I think, is that we can feel this um, maybe even most frequently, unfortunately, with other religious people. When you're with other Christians, you start to feel the standard of perfectionism and the burden of this. And you start thinking, I cannot let people see the real life that I'm leading. I can't let people see the mess that I really am. I can't allow them to see these weaknesses. I can't allow them to see these failures. And worst of all then, you start thinking that this is the way that God looks at you as well. That somehow your acceptance before Him, for Him to be happy with you, for Him to love you, you must have your act together. You must live as David Brooks describes, and that that's really what God intends for you and what He expects of you. What Jesus says in this passage is something radically different, and it is meant to shock us. In these verses, what Jesus says is is what He does is He begins to describe the life of the kingdom of God. What does it look like to live in the kingdom of God? And that's really what the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is about. And the Beatitudes, what we're looking at this morning, is the foundation of that life. And I think what you'll see is that this kingdom life is not what we might initially expect, particularly with regard to our standards of perfection. So this question that we're going to be looking at the next two weeks, we'll look at verses 13 through 16 next week, is what does it mean to be a kingdom community? Like, what would it look like for us as a church to embody this kingdom life? And our answer for this week is this. Being a kingdom community means embracing our desperate need of Jesus in all of life. And by implication, that means forsaking, turning away from these standards of perfection that are unrealistic and uncalled for in many areas of our lives. And what we'll see in each of these Beatitudes is that there's this liberating message of grace this radical grace that comes to us as a gift. But as Darwin mentioned, there's also this call as well. And I've tried to get at that even with our headings this morning. So we'll look at this in three points. The first, the kingdom community looks upward, not inward. 
And so we're going to have to look at these uh, rather briefly. But what does the kingdom community look like? How does Jesus describe those who are in His kingdom in this passage? Well, we take a look back at verse 3 there. He says, the members of His kingdom are poor in spirit. What does He mean by this? To be poor in spirit is to recognize your helplessness before God. He's referring to a spiritual poverty here that says, I know what God has called me to, and I know that I'm found wanting. I know that I'm not what I should be, and I recognize that I don't have anything in and of myself to commend me before God. It's to recognize that wearing this mask of false piety is not what God desires. What Jesus invites us to in this very first beatitude is to actually be honest with our spiritual poverty, which immediately cuts against our perfection. What Jesus says is if you recognize that poverty this morning, you're blessed. Secondly, verse 4, members of Jesus' kingdom mourn. Another way to think about this is that they are brokenhearted. And he really, I think there are a couple ways we could look at this sort of mourning. We're first of all broken over our own sin, and this flows from that recognition of our poverty in spirit. That, that when you begin to realize that what you have to, to commend yourself before God is not anything at all, then there's a mourning that comes from that, where, where you begin to recognize your own sin and you're broken up by it, there's a mourning that takes place. And Jesus says, recognizing that is actually something blessed. That's a good thing to recognize. But there's a second way in which we mourn as well, that we're broken over how we've been sinned against. Jesus recognizes that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And what he's saying is that it is good and right to recognize that and to weep over it, to mourn over the brokenness of our world. And if you're here exploring Christianity, what you need to see is that Jesus does not ask you to act as though these bad things, these legitimately wrong things that have been done to you are actually not that bad. Jesus says, look at the brokenness of the world. Look at what's been done to you and call it what it is. It's wrong. Things are not supposed to be this way. And he says, you are blessed when you mourn because you'll be comforted. That there's hope in the midst of this. If you are there this morning, Jesus says you're blessed. Thirdly, members of Jesus' kingdom are meek, he says in verse 5. Again, this flows from the previous two. When you realize that you're poor in spirit, you've mourned over it, meekness is what follows. Life in the kingdom is one of humility. It's not one of vying for manipulative power. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate picture of this. One who was meek in and through the whole of his life. Fourthly, Members of Jesus' kingdom hunger and thirst for righteousness, he says in verse 6. I think this is a great verse to take a closer look at. Notice that what he says here is that he's talking about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They have a desire for righteousness and not the possession of it. He's saying here that you long to be righteous, though you aren't yet righteous. This is something to long for, and he says that you will actually be satisfied. Great quote from Teresa of Avila. She says, Oh God, I don't love you. I don't even want to love you, but I want to want to love you. 
That's really what Jesus is getting at here, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So how can we summarize these? What Jesus is saying is that members of His kingdom embrace their need of His grace. They recognize their spiritual poverty. They mourn over it that results in meekness. And they long for this righteousness that they don't yet have. They're recognizing their imperfection. But they're looking to Jesus as the one who extends grace to them. Why is that so difficult to acknowledge, let alone embrace? A couple reasons. Embracing this need, I think, is so difficult because it runs contrary to the world around us. This is some of what David Brooks is getting at, that we as Americans view the world as a meritocracy. And rightly or wrongly, we view our success as those who who have uh, forged their own destiny. You're successful if you work hard. If you're not successful, it's because you didn't work hard. It's your own fault. And so we have, we have taken this in as our ultimate goal, that success is what we're working towards, and we have internalized it. This is in the air that we breathe. And it spills over into the way in which we view God as well. There's a real sense in which we would look at the, the happy, the wealthy, the successful people and say, God has really blessed them. Those are the ones that God has blessed. In January, we canceled our cable right after the end of the college football season. We're trying to save a few, <laughs> few bucks. And so I'm looking through the channels that we had left on our, our just basic package. And there are like six religious stations. A um, little pastoral tip for you from the very start. Don't watch any of them, okay? Um, this was a train wreck to watch, but I had to keep watching it. And the basic message was, trust Jesus, and of course, send money as well, and you're going to be victorious. You will be blessed financially, that you will be happy, that your life will be what you hoped it would be, that your dreams will come true, and that that's really what Jesus is all about. What Jesus says in this passage is, blessed are those who recognize their need of grace. Those who recognize their own brokenness. Those who recognize that things are not the way they're supposed to be. A second reason I think this is really difficult for us, and this is the big one, is that we have staked our identity in our achievement. And so that from the very start prohibits us from actually admitting failure, weakness, brokenness. It feels like death to us to admit those things because we have defined ourselves by our achievement. And so when anything starts to threaten that achievement, it feels like our whole world is falling apart. Therefore, we can never admit it. Whether it's in your job, in the degrees that you hold, your parenting, your marriage, any of these things you can look at and think, my worth and my value come from my success in this area of life. This is what it looks like for me, uh, my own struggle. This uh, has become very apparent to me over the last four or five years. I've had to face this reality of my own competitiveness towards other pastors. And it's really, really ugly. So we'll just get that out there right from the start. Um, I think if I'm not a better preacher, teacher, counselor, leader, whatever, fill in the blank, then I am then this person over here, then I'm worthless. Then what I'm doing really doesn't matter. Why is that? 
because I have staked my identity in my supposed success in ministry. And that is deadly, deadly to do. Admitting that we need grace bumps up immediately against our pride, and it is a painful, painful process. What's the solution? What does Jesus offer us in this passage? If that's you this morning, you need to hear this. Jesus alone defines you. Jesus alone defines you. Not your accomplishments, not your resume, not your reputation. He accepts you actually based on something completely apart from what you've done or haven't done. He accepts you based on what He has done. And this blessedness that He's speaking of in this passage is first and foremost a gift to us. Darwin was careful to explain that in that confession of sin, that that this isn't first a call to us. This blessing, first and foremost, is a gift of grace that can't be manifested or earned. It's grace to us. And so the solution for us then is to look upward to Jesus rather than inward to ourselves. And I realize that is a really scary thing to do, to actually begin to turn away from staking your identity in your achievements. It's a very frightening thing to do. Uh, Ryan Anderson, a TCU campus minister, uh, just sent this email out last week with a little update of what he'd been doing this summer. And he, he spoke of being at Frog Camp, which is this uh, it's TCU's orientation for incoming freshmen. And one of the really cool things that they do is uh, they have these small groups and you, you spend the whole of these couple days with this small group of people. So you actually start to get to know them pretty well. And he mentioned uh, that they were discussing labels that they carried over from high school and what it would be like now to be at TCU and not have those same labels anymore. Here's what uh, he said this girl mentioned. She said, I think it's scary. I mean, not to have what I've had for so long makes me feel exposed. Labels are security for me. Without them, I don't know who I am. That's honesty about the, 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 the fear that comes with turning away from staking our identity and our achievement. But the good news of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about is that you have a new identity. You can admit your weakness and your need of grace because Jesus, through His life, death, and resurrection, has given you a new identity, a new label. And that label in this passage is blessed. That label is accepted. It says you are forgiven. That label says loved. It says eternally accepted and secure. And embracing that new identity in Jesus actually then frees us up in these other areas to admit our need of grace. And it liberates us from that compulsive need to define ourselves by our accomplishments. This is what the Beatitudes say to us. And a quick application for us as a church. If you just think for a moment, and I think this church is, we are moving in this direction without a doubt. But think about how beautiful it would be to be the sort of church, the sort of community where you can actually be honest with your brokenness and your need. Where you actually didn't feel the compulsion to put forward your best foot all the time, but instead to be open and honest with the struggles you're actually facing. A community that that, that would, at the end of the day, not hold up our reputation, but would hold up Jesus instead and be defined by Him. 
That's what Jesus is calling us to. And we become that sort of community by looking upward, not inward, to Jesus and not to ourselves. So Jesus invites us to that in these first Beatitudes. And, and as we do that, as we recognize our need before Him and the way in which He meets that need, it actually has implications for the relationships around us as well. And that's our second point. The community of the King looks toward people, not away. So as you realize this grace that you've been shown, it actually then creates in us a graciousness towards other people. Look at verse 7. Members of Jesus' kingdom are merciful. As you taste that mercy that God Himself has shown to you in Jesus, you become one who can then extend mercy to other people. And he mentions here there's a significant connection between this mercy that we would receive from God and that we would show to others. The two are intimately bound up. But the the end result here is that forgiveness becomes a way of life. Verse 8, members of Jesus' kingdom are pure in heart. As you become one who, who is fundamentally defined by Jesus, and as He takes up residence in you by His Spirit, He actually begins to bring about this purity of heart that has implications in all of our relationships. How so? Well, you can actually begin to see others not as people that you're competing against, not as people that you're trying to one-up or avoid, but as those who have this very same need of Jesus, and that transforms your view of them. He says in verse 9, members of Jesus' kingdom are peacemakers. Darwin mentioned this as well. This is more than just an absence of conflict. This isn't just that that you become a good mediator in the midst of conflict, although it could mean that for sure. The the, the word peace here is a, a reference back to the Old Testament Hebrew word of shalom. And I know Darwin's mentioned this multiple times, that this word shalom is much bigger than just an absence of conflict. That that really what, what Jesus is talking about here is wholeness. It's life as God intended it to be. That's a blessed life of the kingdom. And so what, what Jesus is saying here is that once, once you yourself have tasted this wholeness, you become a whole maker. That's what happens, that you begin looking and working toward this well-being of the place that God has called you. And it impacts the whole of your life. It impacts the way in which you'd approach your family, your friends, your neighborhood. You become one who seeks the wholeness of that place. So how do we summarize these? Members of Jesus' kingdom move towards people rather than away from them. We move towards people rather than away. Why is this so hard? Why would we rather, honestly, look away from people and ignore people? A couple reasons. One is that moving towards people is inconvenient. Right from the very start, you know that engaging with people requires time and it requires effort, and it's going to mean that you will have to die to yourself It's going to throw off your schedule. But it also means that your interaction with people will come at a cost to you emotionally. As you get involved in other people's lives, you realize very soon that just like you, they're struggling with certain issues as well and things get messy. And you open yourself up to actually being wronged by others and that can be a very, very painful thing. To invest in other people and then just not have them return that can be really hard. There are real obstacles to moving towards people. 
So what does Jesus say? How does He respond to us in the midst of those difficulties? A couple things. One, you must believe that what Jesus is saying here and what He is calling us to is actually for your good. And that's true of anything that God calls us to. You have to believe on some level that as hard as this might be, I have to believe that, that God intends this for my good. That blessing really does come from being involved in these difficult relationships and reaching out to people around me. You've got to believe that your flourishing is tied up with the flourishing of those people around you. The flip side of that, and we could put it this way, is that you weren't created to pursue your own selfish ends. And that actually when you try and do that, you're going to come up empty in the end. Uh, Tom Brady was being interviewed Sports Illustrated a few years back. Um, Tom Brady was hated in Indianapolis, so this was really easy to use as an illustration there. Um, he, says, uh, he says this about his success. He says, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, Hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't what it's all cracked up to be. So the interviewer asks, what's the answer? He says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And this is even more telling. The interviewer asks him, which of the rings do you like best? What's your favorite ring? My favorite ring? I've always said the next one. The next one is best. You must believe. What Jesus is calling you to here is for your good. It's for our flourishing as a community, and it's what Jesus intends for you. A second way that we overcome these struggles is to call out to Jesus in the midst of this. This is probably the most basic point, that each beatitude, as Darwin mentioned, comes to us as a promise. That, That what Jesus is saying is that I will make you into a merciful community. I will make you into a community that is pure in heart. I will make you into a community that actually seeks the good of this place that God has called us to. And so what we do in prayer, and this is the model over and over again in the Psalms, is we pray according to those promises, that that, that we're holding God to what He has said He will do. God, bring this about in our lives. Bring this about in our community. So life in Jesus' kingdom is outward-facing. He calls us to look toward people rather than away, to move towards them in love rather than to ignore them and look away. But as we move towards them, we're immediately faced with pain, suffering, misunderstanding, even persecution. And this is what Jesus says at the end of the Beatitudes. The community of the king looks up again and not down. And what he says in verses 10 and 11 is that persecution is inevitable in Jesus' kingdom. And I want to be really careful here because there are parts of the world and in the context in which Jesus is writing where the persecution that's happening is something markedly different than anything we face. So I don't want to downplay the reality that, that, that people, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are facing persecution that involves their very lives. At the same time, Jesus intends this word for us as well. There's application for us. So what might this look like for us 
in our Western context when we're not facing that same sort of persecution that others do? Well, it could just be that in a real attempt to love and care for somebody, to, to move into their lives, you then face significant rejection and that relationship falls apart. That's painful. That hurts. That's suffering on some level. It could just be the social consequences of being a Christian that you would face. The ways in which you would, you would be outcast from certain things just because you refuse to participate in what others are doing. I mean, it could be integrity in your work. I had a friend in, uh, in Indiana who had been a Ph.D. student in chemistry at Columbia University. Very, very bright, very, doing very well in his field. But then he found out in the course of his, in the course of his study that his advisor was engaging in all sorts of unethical practices. And so he called the, the guy on this. And, of course, as that was exposed, his advisor dismissed him And my friend was the one who ended up looking bad in the scenario because he was committed to following Jesus in the workplace as well. That sort of thing is persecution as well. And Jesus says this is a reality in the life of the kingdom. That this is something to expect. It happened to the prophets, he says in verse 12, and it certainly happened to Jesus. And I think there are a couple temptations that we have to fight when that sort of thing arises. The first is to assume that because I'm facing hardship, this must be because God is punishing me. That it must be because I have done something wrong and now God is out to get me. And if you start believing that, it is easy to go down the road of hopelessness and despair. To think that God is out to get me. The other possibility is to think that God has just flat out abandoned me. Because if he were still with me, there's no way that he would let this happen. How does Jesus respond to us? What does he call us to? What he calls us to is to look up again rather than to look downward and be overcome with grief and to despair. He says, in reality, in those circumstances, you are blessed. Not because he is a masochist, but because he himself has walked this road as well. Two comforts this morning. One thing that Jesus speaks to us in the midst of this is that He is with us in our suffering. That there is not one thing that you are enduring right now that Jesus cannot identify with. The author of Hebrews says, For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the road that Jesus walked and He is with you in the midst of whatever it is that you're facing. A second source of comfort comes from the end of this passage. It's the promise that this suffering will not always be so. He says in verse 12 that your reward is great in heaven. He says you are blessed. And the truth is that Jesus is making all things new. There will come a day where this suffering and this persecution will be no more where the fullness of the life that God intended will be enjoyed by His people. And as you you set your hope on that, that brings comfort in the present. So in closing here, how do we then become this sort of community? What does it look like to actually pursue this as a whole? How do we become a community that looks upward and not inward? How do we become a community that looks toward people rather than away? And how do we become a a community that doesn't look downward in the midst of, of... our suffering and persecution, but actually looks up to Jesus once again. 
We do so by turning from this idolatrous standard of perfection and expectation of it. It comes in recognizing our need of grace and actually then turning to this King who offers that grace. This is a God who loves to give us this grace. And it it points us to this source of, of grace and says to us that we need Jesus from start to finish, from first to last, and He delights in showing that grace to us. He is a King who loves to give it. That's what His death and resurrection are all about. And that's what He offers to us this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You uh, that You are a God of grace and one who has called us uh, to be a community that recognizes our need of it. We pray, Lord, that we would know that need and that You would make us into a, a community that lives in accord with that, a community that points one another to Jesus rather than to ourselves. And we thank you that it is your joy and your delight to bring this about in us. We pray that you would do that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?